Reframing theology, belief, and practice for the next generation is a huge undertaking, especially since we're still working to frame theology, belief, and practice for this generation. Maybe it's especially hard when we are still working to frame that very first word, to frame that first word, theology, for ourselves. One of you told me when I shared the topic of this plenum, theology, we're not theologians. And we're not. When we speak with those whom we serve, even when we speak among ourselves, we don't speak of theology. We rarely speak of God. We speak of history and narrative. We speak of parallels with ancient Near Eastern myths. We speak of the authorship of the Torah, always authorship with a lowercase a. We chant the Amidah, but we skip over the implications of Mechaye Hametim. We recite El Malay Rachamim, but we don't dwell on the part where the dead go to rest in Gan Eden. We talk about people engaging in tikkun olam, but not about God bringing Mashiach. None of this is bad. We're rational, scientific, practical people. It's not bad. But maybe it's not all that good either. Maybe our lives, maybe our spirits, maybe our communities would be richer if we sought meaning and beauty in what seems irrational, if we dared to imagine that there is glory in what is inscrutable, mysterious, and just plain weird, if we considered a personal theology, if we talked about God. So here's me, I believe in God. I talk to God, like a lot, you know, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Talk to God a lot. When I counsel people, I usually suggest that they do the same. The first time I counseled this, I was really nervous. And I was really surprised when it went so well. Since then, I've counseled older people and younger people to talk to God. A couple of times I've gotten a strange look, but most often I've gotten interest, acceptance, questions, and ultimately a sense of happiness, a sense of fulfillment. Last Yom Kippur, I gave a Yom Kippur sermon where I held out the possibility, my belief in the possibility of reuniting with loved ones who have died. It went much better than I'd expected. And now I will tell you that I believe in the coming of the Messiah. I would not bet against a physical resurrection of the dead. I tell this to the people I serve. Some of this they accept, or at least accept the possibility or at least consider it, are interested in it, are stimulated by it. And this morning, I'm telling you. So, I know this is all very weird. 
But just because it's weird doesn't mean it's not worth thinking about. Last thing, you know the part in the book of Amos where King Jeroboam's priest Amatsia tells Amos, you need to stop prophesizing at Beit El. Stop prophesizing at Beit El. And the prophet Amos rebukes Amatsia. He says, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the child of a prophet. I herd cattle. I tend sycamores. But Amos admits, God did take me away from the flock. God told me to be a prophet to the people Israel. So, Amos says, hear the word of God. We are not theologians. We aren't prophets. We aren't the children of theologians or the children of prophets. But that doesn't mean we can't still be prophets to our people. It doesn't mean we can't still hear and share the word of God. I'm really honored to share the Bema this morning with our wonderful and distinguished panelists. They will be exploring the language that we use in framing and reframing theology, belief, and practice. They will reconsider and redefine what might be some of our most fundamental terms, from religion and worship to ethics and mitzvah. And they will guide us to use classical language to explore our contemporary and our urgent search for meaning. In order, Yael Splansky is a senior rabbi of Holy Blossom Temple, Toronto's first synagogue. She joined the congregation upon her ordination from HUCJIR 25 years ago, became its 13th senior rabbi in 2014, and in celebration of a quarter century of her leadership, now proudly holds the Baskin Garson Senior Rabbinic Chair. Rabbi Splansky currently serves as a president of the Toronto Board of Rabbis on the Beit Dean of the Reform Rabbis of Greater Toronto, and on the President's Rabbinic Council of HECJIR. She's a Rabbinic Fellow of the Shalom Hartman Institute and editor of Sidor Pirche Kodesh. Rabbi Splansky was recently recognized by Canadian Parliament with the Queen's Platinum Jubilee Award for her commitment to refugee relief, support, and advocacy for the unhoused and building bridges among faith communities. She has a unique privilege of being a fourth-generation reform rabbi. Together with Adam Saul, she raises three menches. Our second panelist, Rabbi A. Brian Stoller, is a senior rabbi of Temple Bethel of Great Neck, New York, an empowering spiritual mentor and thoughtful organizational leader. He sees as his mission to shepherd his congregants toward discovering their own personal pathways into Jewish life so that when they set their feet upon them, they will experience a transformational power of Judaism, connect with people who share their values, find meaning and purpose in their lives, and feel the loving embrace of God and community more deeply than ever before. In the early days of the pandemic, Rabbi Stoller launched a daily morning minion on Zoom that has grown steadily over the last years and continues to engage reformed Jews from across the country as participants and lay leaders in the midst of prayer. He is also a doctoral candidate in Halakha at HUCJIR and a member of the CCAR's Responsive Committee. Our final panelist, Laurence Hoffman, was ordained as a rabbi in 1969, received his doctorate in 1973, and is now Professor Emeritus at the New York campus of HUCJIR, where he has served for almost half a century. 
He is known internationally for his lectures, his scholarship, and his spiritual approach to synagogue consultation. Rabbi Hoffman has written or edited 49 books to date, including My People's Prayer Book, a 10-volume edition of the Siddur with Modern Commentaries, which won the National Jewish Book Award. He has served as a visiting professor at the University of Notre Dame for many years. He has lectured at JTS, USC, and the Yale Divinity School. He holds an honorary degree from the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and is a recipient of the Abraham Geiger Medal. He is a founder of Synagogue 2000, which is a trans-denominational project to envision the ideal synagogue. He, or uh, the organization from um, 2004 to 2015, the organization renamed Synagogue 3000, launched Nextdoor, a call for transformed synagogues to engage the next generation. For the last 15 years, Rabbi Hoffman has served as founder and director of the Tisch Fellowship Program at HECJR in New York, dedicated to fostering creative thought about all things Jewish. I think you know by now, you've got index cards, you've got pens in your bag. As you come up with questions, please save them and we will have time for Q&A at the end of our time together. I am very honored, very happy to cede my place at the pulpit to Rabbi Splansky. I would like to begin with a special kol hakavod for Mark Anshin. Where are you, Mark? Yes. <clears throat> Mark Anshin is a past president of my congregation. And ever since the days when he was Nifty president, he has devoted himself to serving the Jewish people and Israel. This conference has been a labor of love for Mark and his most recent expression of commitment to the reform movement. What I have brought to share with you today is not new. These are old ideas, which I believe still have something to say to us today. I believe they're still insightful, still instructive. Five years ago or so, when thinking about reform Jewish belief and practice, I remembered something I had learned in Dr. Michael Meyer's class on American Reform Judaism. We learned that Kaufman Kohler drafted the Pittsburgh platform to distinguish itself from orthodoxy on the right and from ethical culture on the left. In 1885, these were the two guardrails for the reform movement. In counter-distinction to orthodoxy, reform, reform Jewish leaders and thinkers insisted on liberalism and universal freedoms, civic responsibility, the embrace of the scientific and intellectual advancements of the day, and a kind of messianism that reflected the progress and promise of America. In counterdistinction to ethical culture, which is still based just a few blocks away from here, and was then gaining steam among the modern Jews of city centers across the country, Reform Jewish leaders and thinkers of the 19th century insisted, in contrast to ethical culture, insisted on God, or at least the God idea, 
insisted on prayer and ritual, held on to a particular mission assigned to the Jewish people, and clung to a religious identity which was the source of their ethical practice. You may recall the dramatic story of three generations of Adlers. The grandfather was an Orthodox rabbi in Europe, the son, Rabbi Samuel Adler, who saw 25% of German Jews converting to Christianity, attended the conferences of the 1840s in Germany, which gave birth to the reform movement. He moved then to the United States in 1857 and led Temple Emanuel of New York City. He took down the Mechitza. He introduced Jewish education and confirmation for young women. And he set up welfare systems for the city. And he had a brilliant son named Felix. From a young age, Felix was being groomed to succeed his father. Felix's mother brought him to the tenements to see what they could do to help there. He went on to become the only Jewish student of his class at Columbia, where chapel attendance was required. Reflecting on it years later, he said, one day, I stopped praying. Felix thought Judaism to be too narrow. He rejected its theism in favor of a broad humanistic universalism. And so in 1876, Dr. Adler founded the New York Society for Ethical Culture. There were no ceremonies there, no prayers or rituals there, so that non-Jews could participate and feel included. There was Dr. Adler's brilliant lecture, and there was organ music. Dr. Meyer writes in his response to modernity, he could see that uh, Felix Adler could see no need for continued Jewish separation. If the goal was universal, might it not best be achieved by dropping all particularism? Adler's ethical culture re rejected the idea of Jewish election, rejected Shabbat, rejected Brit Milah. Kaufman Kohler described Adler the Younger as, quote, a man who has deserted the Jewish flag and openly professes his disbelief in God and immortality. Kohler then took up his pen and set to write the Pittsburgh platform to distinguish Reform Judaism from orthodoxy on the right from ethical culture on the left. Why do I bring this story from our history to you today? Because I often hear people, myself included, say things like, we should define ourselves by what we are rather than by what we are not. And yet, it can also be clarifying to say what we are not. Today's Reform Judaism is still defined as not orthodox on matters of inclusion and personal autonomy. The Ethical Culture Center still Stanley, uh, proudly stands on 64th Street, but it is hardly known as a movement today. And we, I believe, are poorer without it. Because without that guardrail on the left, without an ideologically secular movement which takes seriously the commitment to ethical practice, it's harder for Reform Judaism to keep from slipping into that secular space. The ethical practice we do calls for 
the ethical practice we do the, the ethical practice that we do call for seems to be less anchored in our relationship with God and less rooted in the particular language, texts, rituals, and role models of the Jewish people. A few months ago, I officiated at the funeral of a lifelong member of my congregation. His grandchildren, who are fourth-generation Holy Blossom members got up to eulogize him, and they shared joyful memories of their fun-loving grandfather. The only rule at Grandpa Lloydie's house was, there are no rules. The only rule at Grandpa Lloydie's cottage by the lake was, there are no rules. And the only rule on the ski slopes that he loved well into his 80s, there are no rules. I wasn't surprised by these warm memories shared by his grandchildren, but I did feel compelled to share my own memories of him. Another side of their grandfather they may not have known. He was a man who came to Holy Blossom Temple every Shabbat for four hours for Torah study, for prayer, and for probing conversation with fellow congregants and rabbis. Lloyd was a, had a kind of urgency at the Torah study table. He wanted to know, what are the rules? <laughs> Sometimes he seemed desperate to know. How do we know what God wants from us? How do I know what God wants of me? And he would sometimes be frustrated when I'd answer, well, it can be hard to know, or God only knows. And sometimes on a good day, Lloyd would nod and he would point to the words on the page and he would say, that's it, right there. Thank you, Rabbi. Every morning we say, Avinu Malkeinu, Ba'avur Avotenu, Shabbatchu v'cha v'atlamdem chukei chayim, Kein techonenu utlamdenu. Our divine parent, our divine ruler, our ancestors trusted in you. And you taught them the laws of life, the laws for living. Be gracious now to us and teach us too. The repertoire of mitzvot may have shrunk and expanded, shrunk and shifted over the decades with different mitzvot being emphasized in some eras, downplayed or outright rejected in others, rediscovered and revealed for the very first time in our own time. But the mitzvah system has always remained. The belief that a covenant was struck between God and the Jewish people was never abandoned by Reform Judaism. The belief that the way our eternal covenant is upheld through a life of mitzvot, that was always reinforced by our rabbis and teachers. How the covenant was begun, how it is maintained, how it is fulfilled and to what end, all these are up for grabs for interesting debate, of course, but the belief that there is a covenant at all, this was bedrock. Whether the mitzvot were God-given or God-inspired, this too was open to interesting debate. But the belief that there is a God who has hopes and expectations of humanity, who has assigned a unique role for the Jewish people to play in the world, this was still foundational. 
how an individual Reformed Jew chooses to participate in the mitzvah system was an autonomous choice, to be sure. But Reform rabbis and lay leaders throughout our 200 years would speak confidently about religious duty and sacred responsibility. Reform congregations were still the systems and structures that enable Jews to do Jewish, both communally and personally, both on shared time and on private time. Reform rabbis would inspire but not require a life of practice, ethically and ritually. Now, I have no illusions of authority. I do not believe that my congregants will do what I say they ought to do just because I say it. But I believe it is a rabbi's job to say it, to access Jewish wisdom and share it in a way that can be received, embraced, fulfilled, and carried forward. Of course our people have personal autonomy. Of course they are free to choose, and they do. But we shouldn't be so shy about saying what we believe our people ought to do. I like those words, we and ought. They are aspirational. They are spiritually ambitious. They are religiously encouraging words, we and ought. Hermann Cohen taught that God is the agreement between is and ought. God is the inevitable and ultimate ideal coincidence of what is with what ought to be. Yesterday morning's delightful service ended with the words, Serve God joyfully. Come before God with rejoicing. The satisfaction we seek in life, the meaning and purpose we seek over the course of a lifetime can still be found when we take up a mitzvah of one kind or another to move the world ever so slightly from the is to the ought. In preparing for today, I went, wow, okay, I went um, back to Rabbi Plout's 1965 address to the CCAR. He urged his colleagues to return Shabbat to the center of Reform Jewish life, but there is a very important paragraph where he speaks more broadly about the Reform approach to mitzvot. Rabbi Plout of blessed memory said, my colleagues, the so-called absence of a Reform halacha is fiction, not fact. Without adding a single resolution, our present halacha would occupy a good-sized volume. In denying ourselves the full effect of calling it by its proper name, we also rob ourselves of the most distinctive element of Jewish existence. Mitzvah, he said, is an indigenous part of Judaism. There can be no Judaism without mitzvah. To return to a concept of Reform Halakha is not to falsify Reform Judaism, but to return to its fountainheads. All the early conferences and synods were concerned with Halakha. It was never a question of whether or not to have rules, but what rules to have. Our people looking, are looking for a catalog of mitzvot, and it is our duty to supply it. It must bear the best imaginative qualities of our movement. 
If I have time a little later, I'll share with you one more idea about how we can imagine a Reformed Jewish expression of these mitzvot. In conclusion, let me say this. It's a question posed by Gershom Sholem, cited by Paul Mendes Flor in his book on Rosenzweig's philosophy. Sholem said, the God who has been banished from man by psychology and from the world by sociology no longer desires to sit in the heavens and therefore gave up the seat of the quality of justice to dialectical materialism and gave up the seat of the quality of mercy to psychoanalysis. God contracted God's self until nothing of God remained revealed at all. But perhaps God's last contraction is really a revelation. Perhaps the disappearance of God into a point of nothingness has a higher purpose. And only in a world which has been totally emptied of God will be where God's sovereignty is revealed. Are we there yet? Avinu malkeinu ba'avur avoteinu shabatchu v'cha v'atilamdem chukei chayim kein techoneinu utlamdeinu. Our divine parent, our divine ruler, our ancestors trusted in you and you taught them the laws of life, the laws for living. Be gracious now to us and teach us too. Thank you, I'm very honored to be here and to be part of this wonderful panel. American Reformed Jews to borrow a phrase from the band R.E.M., are losing their religion. The drop in engagement with our movement is part of a broader trend of decreasing religious affiliation across the board in our country. But the story is not all gloom and doom. Tara Isabella Burton, a contemporary theologian and observer of American culture, in her outstanding book, Strange Rites, points out that the decline in conventional religiosity is not matched by a corresponding decline in spirituality. This is evidenced by the fact that people who define themselves as spiritual but not religious is one of the fastest growing groups in American religious life meaning there remains a strong thirst for spirituality, even among millennials and Gen Zers. They're just not seeking it in traditional religions anymore. Burton explains that traditional religions offer four key benefits to the spiritual seeker. Meaning, purpose, community, and ritual. Once upon a time, not so long ago, a person would seek out all four of these elements in just one religion. 
but this is no longer the case. Burton argues that today, people are seeking to meet their spiritual needs in what she calls a remixed fashion, meaning they feel free to mix and match, a little of this, a little of that, to create their own personalized form of spirituality. And instead of looking exclusively or even mainly to conventional institutional religions like Judaism, the spiritually remixed are turning to what Burton calls intuitional forms of spirituality. Secular quasi-religions like social justice and DEI, politics, wellness culture, science, and even Harry Potter fandom. Given this trend, it would be futile to discourage our people from seeking their spiritual fulfillment in a remixed way, and to claim that they can find everything they're looking for in Judaism alone, if only they would give it a chance. The ancient Nazir we read about in this week's parasha, the monk-like figure who seeks religious meaning by immersing himself in extreme Jewish practice, is dead. As Burton puts it, this shift is deeply rooted in the technological changes of the 21st century. It is at heart the natural spirituality of internet and smartphone culture. And yet, even as science and technology have made our world so much more expansive, their sheer ubiquity has also, paradoxically, narrowed our understanding of it. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel already realized this half a century ago. In God in Search of Man, he tells this parable. When the electric streetcar made its first appearance in the city of Warsaw, some good old Jews could not believe their own eyes. A car that moves without a horse. Some of them were stupefied and frightened, and all were at a loss how to explain the amazing invention. Once, while discussing the matter in the synagogue, a man entered who, in addition to studying the Talmud, was reputed to know books on secular subjects, to subscribe to a newspaper, and to be well-versed in worldly affairs. You must know how this thing works, they all turned to him. Of course I know, he said. And they were all hanging on his every word with total concentration. Imagine four large wheels in a vertical position in four corners of a square, connected to each other by wires. You get it? Yes, we get it. The wires are tied in a knot in the center of the square and placed within a large wheel, which is placed in a horizontal position. You get it? Yes, we get it. Above the large wheel, there are several wheels, one smaller than the other. You get it? Yes, we get it. On top of the smallest wheel, there is a tiny screw, which is connected by a wire to the center of the car, which lies on top of the wheels. Do you get it? Yes, we get it. The machinist in the car presses the button that moves the screw that brings the horizontal wheels to move, and thus the car runs through the street. Ah, 
Now we understand. Heschel uses this parable to point out that as we gain ever more technical knowledge of how things work, we tend to wrongly believe that we understand the totality of everything. But this is a delusion. There is infinitely more we don't understand. How is it even possible that there are elements and forces in the world that if you combine them just so, you get a car or a smartphone? How is it even possible that the human mind has the capacity to figure these things out? As the majestic and sublime give way to the much narrower field of the observable and provable, we don't ask questions like this anymore, let alone contemplate them. We lose our innate sense of awe and wonder. Consequently, as the theorist Stephen D. Smith puts it, our experience of the world becomes unconsecrated. Because while it may be explainable by empirical data and mathematical formulas, it is missing that intangible and enchanting quality we call holiness. To quote Smith, this reality might be compared to a movie with the musical soundtrack deleted. Visually, the same actions occur, but something is missing. Something that helped to endow the movie with mystery and joy, romance and suspense. An unconsecrated world is a world with no musical score. The great spiritual challenge of our time is to rediscover the music, to expand and deepen our awareness of reality by venturing into the realm of the holy. Judaism's term for holy, as you know, is kodesh. The same word also means separate. In Judaism, holiness and separateness are bound up together. Kodesh refers both to the fullness of all the earth and also to all that exists separate and apart from the ordinary stuff of the world. And we say in the liturgy, Kadosh, 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 Adonai Tzvaot, Melochol Haaretz Kivodo, Leumatam Baruch Yomehu Baruch Kivod Adonai Mim Komo. And that last line means, blessed is God from God's transcendent place, a place that is beyond our reach, is how Rav Soloveitchik explains it. While the modern secular quasi-religions of the remixed do offer community, ritual, purpose, and meaning, they do not in any way point to the holy for the simple reason that they are fundamentally humanist in nature, meaning that they center on the human being and the human experience, and thus they limit the scope of reality to that which humanity can know and master. By contrast, Judaism sees a reality in which 
humanity plays an important role to be sure, but which is also much, much bigger than we are. A reality that is infinitely complex and mysterious. And no matter how much knowledge we gain through scientific discoveries and how many new capabilities we acquire through technological developments, this reality, with a capital R, will forever be beyond our ability to fully comprehend or control. Einstein said, the most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. He to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. Einstein pinpointed something profoundly true about the innate human longing for spiritual connection with the wondrous and sublime and transcendent. This is why even as we continue to abandon traditional religion, we are still searching. And while we are finding a lot of what we're looking for outside of conventional religion, it still feels like something is missing. Because modern secular humanist culture and its forms of discourse, like politics, social justice, wellness, and science, don't give us the vocabulary to engage with the mystery. It's just not their sphere of concern. We cannot, and maybe should not, hope to supplant these secular religious forms, but we can fill this major gap they leave. We can fill it with language that can help us become more attuned to the sublime and transcendent dimensions of reality. Fortunately, Judaism gives us that language. We call it liturgy. And it's found in what may be the most important text in all of our tradition, and that is the Siddur. My proposal for recharging Reformed Judaism is to offer the people in our orbit the opportunity to build an intimate relationship with the liturgy, not only or even primarily so that they can participate more fully in prayer, but much more importantly, so that they will have a spiritual vocabulary to have conversations about things like holiness, reverence, awe, God, and cosmic purpose. A vocabulary that can help them make sense of their lives in the context of a reality that is far too vast and far too mysterious to be explained by conventional humanist concepts and categories. We are doing this at my congregation on Long Island. I teach a weekly adult education class called Judaism's Spiritual Vocabulary, devoted to careful, in-depth study of the prayer book. Because the class is ongoing rather than limited to a certain number of sessions, we move through the liturgy slowly and deliberately, exploring the various dimensions of meaning from literary structure to biblical allusions in the poetic language to halakha to underlying philosophies and rabbinic texts. And in addition, a crucial aspect of our methodology is to study the liturgy together with secular, scientific, and philosophical sources to draw out deeply embedded ideas and gain insight 
from comparing Jewish and secular worldviews. One example of this is a recent series of conversations in which we contrasted the Kabbalistic concept of the soul with modern scientific literature explaining why the concept of a soul is incompatible with a theory of evolution. And we discussed at length these contrasting theories' implications for the meaning of human life. These conversations elicit insights and invite exchanges of ideas that simply don't happen in other settings because the vocabulary we engage with in that room is a vocabulary that just isn't used in other spheres of life. In the remixed world of today where people are curating their spirituality from the best of what they think is out there, I believe Reform Judaism's uniquely comprehensive and modern vocabulary of transcendence and holiness embodied in our liturgy can add value for anyone who is searching. Thank you. Well, in the best spirit of rabbinic conversation, rabbinic sermons, and rabbinic lectures, I begin by saying uh, that before I actually give my talk, I'd like to say a few words. <laughs> the few words are, of course, words of thanks. Thanks to the people who planned it, no doubt. Thanks to the panelists. We've had a wonderful time preparing it. I hope you like it as much as we did. <laughs> but mostly, I want to say thanks to all of you. I am, I, am, I am moved, almost tears, when I see people who have come from all over. I say to you that the, there is no precious thing in the world to me than to serve the Jewish people. And here you are, rabbis, cantors, educators, executive directors, lay people, professionals of all sorts, and you've come together to prove that you do serve the Jewish people. And I look around and I see so many people who were my students once upon a time. And I can't tell you what a joy it is to see you doing what you wanted to do, pursuing your calling. I consider myself enormously fortunate just to be here to observe you and to tell you of my high regard for you. Thank you very much. Well, that's what you do. And what do I do? I have decided that what I do most these days is think. In fact, the Hebrew Union College has paid me for a number of years to be able to think, and I am grateful for that. So today, I just want to think with you out loud. I begin with a story about Gertrude Stein, who lay dying, and her disciples gathered all around her, pleading, Gertrude, Gertrude, what's the answer? To which Stein replied, what's the question? <laughs> and I love the story because her witty response is a wickedly relevant reminder today that we need new questions to fit the historical singularity of our time. The changeover after half a millennium, mind you, from an era of print to a digital age, an information age, an AI revolution, and God knows what else in 10, 20, or 50, or 100 years from now. The printing press mass-produced Bibles, 
without which there would have been no Martin Luther fomenting the, a, a Protestant re reformation by urging people to read them. By the 17th century, it gave us prayer books allowing Polish rabbi Shabtai Sofer to warn cantors against changing even a single letter. And two centuries later, the production of paper from pulped wood allowed any rabbi worthy of their salt, and some who weren't, to write, to write their own prayer books. And all of that is just the tip of an iceberg when these changes occur. Think further. Book culture made reading a private matter for everyday people. It created, therefore, personal privacy, even individualized identity. The modern person, really. Institutionally, printing created national religious headquarters to disseminate the official curriculum prayer books and stuff that local headquarters, like our synagogues, needed. And it created local synagogues as headquarters, too, where the official Jewish word was preached. You had to go there to get it. And these powerful centers now, the synagogue, the CCAR, the UAHC, now URJ, and HUC, they had monopolies on defining what, who is a Jew and who should marry whom and whether and how people convert and what counts as proper prayer and so on and so on and so on. Now I tell you these institutions still matter. They matter more than ever today. We need them more than ever. But their era of being the center of a print culture is over. Aleha HaShalom. Requiescat in pace, as some say. <laughs> it should rest in peace. Move on. So Martin Buber tells of a Rebbe who derived lessons from technological innovations. From the telegraph, he learned that every word is counted and costly. From the telephone, he saw that what is said here is heard there. And now we have Zoom, which makes institutional boundaries porous and teaches us that it's never quite clear who is in and who is out. Social media erase automatic privacy. They expand our audience across the globe. The internet transfers power from the center to the periphery, where online users enjoy near infinite choices, where competition is just the norm, and where shoddy institutions are doomed. The authority of the rabbi or the cantor must be earned, not simply bestowed by central agencies which themselves are being called into question. Books conveyed permanence, black on white. There it is. Digital culture invites endless editing, wickification. No wonder we feel certainties slipping away. But, we cannot simply bemoan these cultural realities, especially for the next generation, that are what they are and are things often that we cannot change. And, on the other hand, we cannot just go home again. For the record, I am a lifelong Zionist. I speak regularly about God, I always have. The Jewish people is a theological reality for me which I have never doubted. And guess what? None of that is relevant if I do not master a newly compelling way of speaking to the next generation about these things. If I simply shout louder and louder and louder, I will simply confirm the suspicion that I am like the academicians described by Sinclair Lewis as professors 
who like their literature clear and cold and pure and very dead. <laughs> we make progress best, says philosopher Richard Rorty, not by arguing better, but by speaking differently. So I want to speak differently with you today. Let me field a new way of speaking that responds to the paradigm change of our time. First, Judaism itself, what is it? Well, it became a religion, we you know, only when Napoleon told the Paris Sanhedrin that it had to be one. But that definition never did coincide with reality, nor did it correspond with reality even for Protestants and Catholics. As I learned from an Episcopalian priest who once said to me, hey, we wasps are ethnics too. Think of all those tiny white bread sandwiches that Jews won't be caught dead eating. Religion is like love. It's a many-splendored thing. But in all its guises, it is a complex weave of words, art, and actions that respond to the human condition. Historian of religion Jack Miles thinks the breakthrough for human consciousness was the realization not just that we know, but that we know that we know. And we know also that no matter how much we know, we will always know that there is more to know. We are the species that eats, not just for calories, but for conversation. That meets, not just for procreation, but for relationships. That strives for security we can never have, an eternity we cannot even imagine. That, in sum, is the human condition. And religion is the human response to it. So let's newly define religion, then. It's the practice of communicating in a range and registers that do justice to the fullness of the human condition. I'll even repeat it. It's the practice of communicating in a range and registers that do justice to the fullness of the human condition. Not just empty time, but an annual calendar. A Jewish people that locates us in history Rules for food, ethics for action, a story of the universe and where we come from, thoughts on eternity and where we go to. And we do all of this to an evolved capacity for language. Like other animals, we eat, dream, work, fight, and love. But we uniquely talk in advance about it, and then talk our way through it, and then talk about it again afterward. I know much is beyond language. I mean, Beethoven and, and, and Van Gogh and the web telescope images of the outer space. But we process even these by conversation. Except for sleeping, we spend more time conversing than any other pursuit. If we don't talk to others, we talk internally to ourselves. Or out loud to people who are not even in the room. Or even in this world or not even to people, sometimes, but rather to someone we call God. We are uniquely the species that converses. Definitions are never essentialist. They are always pragmatic. They can never capture exactly what a thing is. They should be judged by the questions they make possible, the extent to which they solve the problems that face us. William James said it best when he said they must have cash value. So it's such a working definition. Think of Judaism as a conversation through time. 
I mean, of course, it's a lot more. Jewish culture, Jewish religion, Jewish people, Jewish state. But all of these are negotiated by our electing to join the age-old Jewish conversation about them. And in our time, redefining Judaism as a conversation opens up new questions that help us think differently about the weighty issues that are all around us. What synagogues are for? What a rabbinic curriculum should look like? What the Jewish people is? And even who is in and who is out? To religion as a response to the human condition and to Judaism as a conversation, we should add also the fact that the digital age has made us full-time curators of our identities. When the biblical sailors ask Jonah who he is, he responds, I'm a Hebrew, period. And then he goes on to describe what that is, to believe in the God of the Hebrews. Well, his response today would be different. I imagine today he would have said, who are you? Well, it's complicated. <laughs> I'm a Hebrew, but I'm a prophet by profession, and I guess a son and a husband, and well, I'm actually in between things at the moment. <laughs> Today we are all many things. I, for example, am a Jew, an American, and still something of a Canadian. A professor and a reform rabbi, and yes, a father and a grandfather. I'm an aging retiree who maybe is failing retirement and will someday fail aging. Each of you has your own list. But here's the point. However high the Jewish part may rank, being Jewish today is no longer an all-or-nothing proposition. As conversation animals, we can theoretically array our conversations on a pie chart and then measure the Jewish identity by the extent to, and, per, and passion of the Jewish conversational slice. But since we are many things, holding many conversations, the question of whether someone is Jewish as if there's a simple yes or no, should be replaced by asking when someone is Jewish and how passionately. In the centralized institution of book culture, the public we addressed were Jews. Insiders were already defined as people who are in. In the digital age of curated identity, anyone can join our Jewish conversation, and they do. It's time to recognize that our public is the world. Anyone intrigued by the millennia-old conversations that we offer. Conversations occur only when conversationalists feel comfortable with them. Conversations must also be interesting or no one bothers with them. So redefine synagogues as keepers of the Jewish conversation. To be sure, some things are beyond talk. They can only be pointed to, experienced. So let's redefine worship as the ritual artistry of the Jewish conversation through time and experience. It's excessively judged by whether it is an experience of such moment that it deepens the Jewish conversation when it's over. The liturgy itself, the liturgical script, is the primer or user's guide to the terms that the Jewish conversation holds dear. It's not exactly the cliff notes, but given how prayers were once upon a time written on parchment, we can call them the cloth notes. 
Rabbinic school must, above all, outfit students to be masters of the Jewish conversation and experts in making it interesting. Sermons illustrate the Jewish conversation's relevance to the fullness of the human condition, and more than anything else, rabbis need time off from busyness and time on to read and think and study and make sure they have something worth saying, lest the Jewish conversation die the slow and painful death of banality. Well, I haven't talked much about God yet, and my time is up. <laughs> and I knew I wouldn't get to God, but it's in 15 minutes. In sum, religion as a response to the fullness of the human condition. The digital age is a time when we curate our identities. An expansion of our public to include the world, not just Jews. And Judaism as a conversation with all that is implied for synagogues, ritual, seminary, curricula, and the like. Here I suggest is a new way of speaking that answers Gertrude Stein's question. What is the question? I'm sure I speak for all of us to say thank you so much to Professor Hoffman, to Rabbi Stoller, to Rabbi Splansky. This is a wonderful panel, um, and I think we're all just so happy to be in the room with you um, and to have been able to, to learn from you um, and with you this morning. Thank you. We have a few questions um, already. Please feel free to bring them up um, if you have more. Um, and as we start, I wanted to ask, um, especially um, Rabbi Hoffman and Rabbi Stoller, about just the, the role of God um, in your remarks and your understandings of religion, your understandings of how we use the language of liturgy to capture our experience. Um, how would you add the word, the term, um, the language of God? Well, uh, of course, you know, God is, is very present in the spiritual vocabulary of the liturgy um, for all the reasons that we understand. And God is, you know, is, is the word, I think, that we give in our language to capture that which uh, defies words. But I'm sitting here also with a, a little book here. It's by Ronald Dworkin. And it's called Religion Without God. Um, it's really a fascinating book. Ronald Dworkin is a philosopher, of, uh, and he was Jewish, although he doesn't write um, specifically as a Jew. But uh, Dworkin describes himself as an atheist. And yet he wrote this book at the end of his life when he said that, you know, atheism ultimately was um, unsatisfying to him. 
Um, not that he was ready uh, to, you know, proclaim a belief in God. And he says he doesn't believe in God. But what he does believe in is what he calls the religious attitude or the religious worldview. And I just want to read this opening statement from his book. He says, um, the theme of this book is that religion is deeper than God. Religion is a deep, distinct, and comprehensive worldview. It holds that inherent objective value permeates everything, that the universe and its creatures are awe-inspiring, that human life has purpose and the universe order. A belief in God is only one possible manifestation or consequence of that deeper, deeper worldview. So to my mind, I'm a believer in God, and I talk about God a lot in my teaching, but I don't think that um, belief in God is required or essential to expand our understanding and interaction uh, with the holy. Um, when I, I remember as a student asking uh, our teacher, Rabbi Borowitz, Dr. Borowitz, about belief in God, and he said something I've always remembered. He said to me, belief in God isn't so important. What really matters is whether God is real in your life. That stayed with me for all these years. It occurred to me later on that the question of whether you believe in God isn't so much a Jewish question anyway. So when did we start asking it? And I think we began asking it only in the 19th century because that's when we defined God as an idea, as we heard earlier. And when you define God as an idea, then of course the question is, do you believe in the idea or not? Is the idea true or not true? But, as long as, but that was an anomaly, it seems to me. So uh, the, belief, the issue of belief in God, though, though it's on many people's minds, and I have to honor that, is not as central as what I mean by is God real. I think that God becomes real primarily through experience. But the issue is whether people have a, are willing to use the word God to define that experience. So the first important thing for people is to give them the experience, and that's where worship and ritual comes in. Durkheim recognized that, and it's absolutely true. I'll tell you just one very quick example. When I was, in, uh, when I was doing Synagogue 2000, I and, uh, and my partner, Ron Wilson, insisted on talking about God from the very, very beginning. Now, we used to have groups of people who came from congregations uh, to these conferences that we had, and one group um, came from the local city in which we were holding the conference, and I later found out that the lay people almost didn't come back the second day. The rabbi convinced them to come back, but what was bothering them is they couldn't believe we were talking about God all the time. Uh, and um, so now, fast forward to three days later, we've had magnificent ritual, great prayer, singing together, I mean, experience, community. And one uh, elderly gentleman, who I probably wasn't as old as I am now, um, <laughs> caught me on the escalator the last day and said to me, you know, he said, I almost didn't return because I don't believe in God. But I want to say to you, I want to thank God that I was here for these three days. Thank you. Let's see. This is a question for Rabbi Spolansky. Um, Rabbi Spolansky, what do you mean when you say that God makes demands of us? Do you mean this literally, literally um, objectively, or as a metaphor um, to express your experience and understanding? Okay. Um, so, I love that question. Um, I'll speak personally. I, I do think that God is 
um, that pull to do more, to do better, um, to feel duty-bound, to do your part, um, to make the world better, um, to serve humanity, and all the rest of the mitzvot, save the planet, and so on, right? That pull, that, um, that, that call. Um, I hope that answers the question. Beautiful, thank you. Someone else writes, Hebrew is a rich wellspring of meaning for me. It can also be a barrier for many congregants and fellow Jews. How do you view the value of Hebrew in prayer and in liturgy? So maybe I'll toss this to Professor Hoffman, if that's okay. Well, I mean, hmm. I, uh, I, uh, I have no problem with Hebrew and the fact I love Hebrew, but that's because, he, you know, I know it. Uh, I understand that many other people don't know it. Um, consequently, I think for them, Hebrew is not so important uh, to get at all the liturgy, but they need enough Hebrew to feel the authenticity of the experience. So we do need Hebrew, even people don't understand a word of it, because it is, uh, the, it is <clears throat> the authentic Jewish language of prayer. More significant to me is the question about translation. On, in our, in our um, Mishkan of Pila, we were, we were told, because of what people asked us, that we had to translate a true translation on the right-hand side of the page. So we did it. Uh, but um, <clears throat> I was hoping no one would use it. Because the fact of the matter is, we need English that does for us what the Hebrew did for our ancestors. So I, I, I am happy for the left side of the page where we try to do something creative. Hopefully, the English should be in the kind of poetry that speaks to our soul the way for those who saw Hebrew as essential to them in an earlier time, it spoke to them. Obviously, I want Hebrew literacy too but I don't think prayer is the place to teach Hebrew literacy. Thank you. Thank you. So I think this is for Rabbi Stoller and Rabbi Splansky. Um, this is a question talking about the next generation. How do you get input um, and ideas about what will be meaningful spiritually for the young people, teens, 20s, and 30s in your congregations? Um, what have you learned um, that can help us, and how can we create spaces um, that will feel spiritually welcoming for all of them? I'll interrupt and say I'm glad you didn't ask me that. <laughs> um, I would say what I've noticed from the coming generations is they are um, very discerning. They want what is um, serious. They want to be taken seriously. They want to be challenged with the real deal. Um, they have uh, not much tolerance for anything that isn't excellent. So whether we're teaching or praying or um, creating something uh, of the Jewish arts, whatever it is, has to be excellent. And that takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of resources, a lot of uh, expertise, and um, that's why we're all working so hard. Uh, so my thoughts, I have a kind of a two, twofold. My thought is twofold. Um, one, I think it's really important to teach uh, kids the vocabulary of prayer. And by that, I specifically do not mean teaching them how to pronounce 
phonetic words that have no content for them. I think we have to teach them the spiritual vocabulary of prayer, the, the, the concepts, and, and, and focus more on, uh, you know, cultivating a relationship with, with God and holiness and transcendence through those concepts than knowing how to pronounce the phonetics, which to me is basically worthless. On the, on the other hand, I think that, um, I think that, and it ties in with the previous question about the Hebrew, you know, the Hebrew language, I think there is something about the, um, the enterprise of prayer that benefits from people using a language that they don't understand. Um, so, so Rabbi uh, Joseph Soloveitchik has a beautiful essay about this where he talks about the fulfillment of the mitzvah of prayer um, happens internally. It's the, it's the internal spiritual drama uh, of the, the self, the spiritual energy welling up inside and pouring forth toward God, where the, that is the essence of prayer. The words are, are only the vessel into which we pour that self uh, to give as an offering. So I think, you know, we have to help uh, younger people, all people, um, learn how to pray by getting into that plate, into the zone of focusing within and helping the waters to, to bubble up and pour, you know, and pour forth. Hebrew, if you don't understand, you don't have to think about what page are we on? What am I saying? What does that mean? If you just have something to pour it into, um, I think that's very powerful also. Okay. This is a really fun question. It is often true, overwhelmingly true, that faith um, can lead to fanaticism, to chauvinism, and to cruelty. I think I could have a much more pleasant afternoon conversation with an atheist than with a true believer. My question, how do you share and teach your faith without doing this, without becoming a zealot? And I kind of want to hear briefly from each of you, if that's okay. <laughs> I like the first question better. <laughs> um, the first, firstly, just don't be a zealot. <laughs> I mean, that's it. I talked about conversation before. If we treat Judaism as a conversation, it means there's got to be another partner. And so we can feel as strongly as we want about something, but it means we have to take into consideration the other. I don't need to have to explain to you, you know, how important Buber is to this understanding. I mean, I skipped over all of that, right? Um, and others too. But as long as we think of it as a conversation in which we, we honor the, 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 the being and the thoughts and the, sp the speaking of the other, then we're not going to become zealots. The minute we start yelling and don't listen to the other person, then we're in trouble. But that's not because there's something wrong with talking about our faith. It just means that we entered into it without the conversation. It was a monologue. So, um, zealot is definitely a pejorative term. Um, but it, I think it has a positive side to the coin too, which is enthusiasm and excitement. Yeah. So when, when I was a rabbinic student, um, and I early on, and I studied with uh, Rick Saracen in um, Cincinnati, and I, he introduced me to the rabbinic literature, and I loved it. I was so excited about it, and I was serving a small, you know, student pulpit in southeast Arkansas, 
And I, I said to him, I would really love to, you know, teach this stuff to these congregants in, in Arkansas. But like, I mean, do you think that, that they would be into that? I feel a little weird. And he said, if you're passionate about it and you're excited about it and you teach it, they will, they'll get excited about it. And it was a very simple statement, but it's really stuck with me because I followed his advice and I found that he was right. If you bring a genuine, a genuine enthusiasm for, you know, for what it is that you want to convey, I think people realize that. Uh, another, uh, one of my congregants recently said the other day on the kind of the flip side of it, she said, and this was such an interesting comment, she said, sometimes I have trouble believing reform clergy. And I think it was a very powerful statement. And from what I could take from it anyway was that she was conveying the sense that maybe she, that she doesn't necessarily think that we believe what we're saying. And I think that, you know, it's so important to believe what you're saying. And if you don't believe it, don't say it. But to believe what you're saying and convey your sincere belief and passion, I think that inspires people very powerfully. Uh, atheists can also be zealots. Um, and so I would try to open up the conversation to talk about how um, it's okay to be inconsistent, right? I think human beings are inconsistent. Um, usually that's uh, a negative term that we're supposed to go for constancy, but I, I don't think that's how we're built. So um, the God that I pray to at the bedside of a sick congregant is different than the congregant, uh, than the, the, the God that uh, I study in my philosophy classes at HUC. And those are different still from um, the, the God that I pray to when it's my own private Amidah. So I, I think that's okay. And I would want to open up the conversation for this um, atheist to tell me, okay, so if, if not a leap of faith, what leap of action might you take as a Jew, as Heschel taught us to do? Can I go back to liturgy and God for a minute? Is that all right? Um, I like what you said just a minute ago about the God of a bedside uh, patient is different than a God you teach in philosophy class or class. Um, and I, I want to build on that. I think one of the powerful things in our liturgy is that it provides us so many images of God. One of the problems with Hebrew, if no one understands it, is they miss those images. For me, of course, I read the Hebrew and I see them in Hebrew. But sometimes the images can come through in English for other people, and they can for me as well. But I want to give you an example of how liturgy leads to the belief in God, so that I said before, and I repeat, well, I'll say it more clearly now. It is not true that I pray because I believe in God, rather the reverse. I, God is real because I pray. So that in prayer, I encounter statements about God, and if it's encountered, artistically, if the worship is moving me, moving me, carrying me along, things that I wouldn't give 10 seconds to, maybe out there in the street or reading it in my study, suddenly come alive for me. That's the beautiful thing about our, about our prayer. So my example is um, I had a very low point in my life. I had been in an accident, broken several 
you know, the bones and wasn't quite clear whether I'd be able to continue doing what I do and had no idea what kind of energy I'd had in a long story, but, but I was finally able to be on crutches and I went to shul, went to synagogue on, you know, on Friday night and um, it got to, it, we came to the Hashki Venu. And I was carried along by the music of that moment, the cantor, it was just done so beautifully. Just done so beautifully. And I, we got to Hashki Venu Adonai Eloheinu and I said, yes, Hashki Venu Adonai Eloheinu l'shalom v'hamidenu malkeinu l'chayim. Still malkeinu then. And I, suddenly it struck me, that's exactly what I want. Tonight I want to go to bed, shalom. And by God, I want to get up tomorrow morning to Chaim. I want to live again. Now I knew that already, but I didn't know it the way I knew it then. And God was real to me at that moment. And suddenly I, I knew I was praying. I knew that, that there was God and I knew that there was a possibility of hope. That's the benefit of prayer in a community where it's done in such a way that the images of God and the sense of God's reality can come through. Whether the next day I believed it in the same way as I believed it then, I'm not, I don't know. I guess I did. But at that moment I was certain. And I think we're looking for in worship to provide those moments so that the lines can come alive. And here's what I advise everyone I teach, and you can tell people yourself. The trick in prayer is to find your line. You don't have to get through the whole thing. But find one line that evening, that morning, that animates your life. And when you do that, your prayer is complete. I'm supposed to take the next three minutes to wrap up, but I can't do any better um, than what Professor Hoffman just did. So I'm going to toss my last three minutes. Rabbi Splansky, you skipped over something in your words. I've gotten a couple of questions, and even if I hadn't, I would have asked you anyway. Can I give you my last couple minutes, and you can tell us what you've you. had to I'll, leave out? I'll be quick. I'll be quick. And I don't think it's the last word, but um, it's not mine. It's uh, teaching from just one paragraph of an article written by Rabbi Arnie Jacob Wolf of Blessed Memory. So you may have a book on your shelf called Duties of the Soul. Do you remember that book? So it was just one kind of throwaway idea that he tucked into this article entitled Back to the Future. And I loved it. I think it's really great for reformed Jewish life and the mitzvah system that is our inheritance uh, to reinterpret. So he says that reformed Jews are uniquely poised to ethicize the ritual mitzvot and ritualize the ethical mitzvot. And I love it. Once you start to play with the categories and see how they talk to each other, um, it's really exciting, actually, and refreshing. So I'll give you an example, one of each, to ethicize the ritual. There, <clears throat> you may have read about <clears throat> years ago, a rabbi in LA, saw so many unhoused people in the, the city streets holding signs, cardboard signs, you know, um, any help you can give, God bless, hungry, will work for food, all those, all those messages. And the rabbi decided to buy up the uh, cardboard signs from the people holding them, if they were willing, for $20 each. 
And then he took the signs home to build the walls of his sukkah. So that the ritual of sukkah and the festival of Sukkot about the fragility of life and about uh, having enough to eat and um, all, all those themes became regular reminders because his walls were literally talking to him. And an example of how to ritualize the ethical I'll give an example from my own congregation. Holy Blossom, for many decades, um, has taken refugee relief work very seriously, bringing Jews and non-Jews to as newcomers to Canada. And so most recently, um, we've been bringing um, both Muslim and Yazidi uh, people from Syria and also asylum seekers from African countries via Israel. And one of our volunteers, an extraordinary uh, Jew, um, only wears a kippah in the, in the sanctuary for prayer. And he started wearing his kippah when he would go to the airport and waving the Canadian flag to greet the newcomers that we had sponsored. Not so that they would know that he was a Jew, but so that he would know. I'm doing this because I am duty-bound as a Jew to fulfill this mitzvah. And um, I, I give you this teaching from Rabbi Wolf. Uh, use it, play with it, and see what good things can come from it. <laughs>